with the Son in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Nick Swan. I'm the associate pastor here at Grace. Welcome to all of you who are joining us online as well. This morning we're going to continue our series in the book of Matthew. And it also is coinciding with the second Sunday of Advent. The title of our message this morning is that Jesus teaches the weeds. But before we start, let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would use your word to shape us. May it reveal more of who you are, who we are, and how we are to live as your disciples in your world. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm sure all of us have experienced unmet expectations in our lives. The food didn't taste as good as we hoped it would. The vacation wasn't as restful as we were anticipating. The new driver we bought for our golf game did not solve the slice that plagues our our game. Marriage and parenting aren't as easy as you thought they'd be. The new job, the new house, the new car, the new clothes... They didn't bring the satisfaction and contentment you thought they would bring when they arrived. As strange as it may sound, Jesus' arrival led to more than a few folks being disappointed. They had expectations for the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and what he was going to do. And he didn't seem to be delivering on their expectations. For many, they were hoping and expecting that this Messiah would arrive and set all things right that he would overthrow the Roman government, that he would rule and reign in righteousness, that he would do away with wickedness and with wicked people. In other words, for Jesus, they thought Jesus would answer the prayer that he taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Jesus' first advent didn't bring about the changes that they had expected or hoped for. Rather than being a reigning king, Jesus was a suffering servant. Rather than ushering in heaven on earth after his death and resurrection, he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father and one day he will come again. In other words, there is this gap between Jesus' coming and his second coming. He's begun a work of redemption, yet he has not completed that work of redemption. It awaits his second coming to be consummated. Our parable today illustrates the tension that each of us feel when we live in the midst of unmet expectations. We live in a world that is in the process of being redeemed, but one that is not yet fully redeemed. We live in a world where believers and unbelievers continue to coexist side by side with one another. For the disciples, the arrival of Jesus on the one hand changed everything. The Messiah has come. The Son of God is here. And yet, in some ways, it didn't change anything at all. They continued under Roman oppression. Sin was still around. The religious leaders of the day had rejected Jesus. In fact, he died, then he rose again, and then he went away. The Messiah, they thought, would make all things new, had actually left them incomplete in this work of redemption. And we who live the other side of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, we likely have similar feelings. 
The world's still broken. Sin and death still reign around us. And unrighteousness day by day goes unpunished. Seeing the state of the world, one might wonder, where is God and what exactly is he doing? And if this is what redemption looks like, when is it going to be brought to completion? This parable responds to these important questions with a call for patience. It directs our attention away from our current circumstances, and it points us to a day when Christ will come again, and when he will set all things right, when he will make all things new. God will finish what he started, but we must be patient, awaiting the perfect timing of Christ. Main point this morning is this, we must wait patiently for Christ's return. Trusting that the gospel will ultimately bring joy to those who trust in it and judgment to those who reject it. We must wait patiently for Christ's return, trusting that the gospel will bring joy to those who trust in it and judgment to those who reject it. One of the difficulty, uh, difficulties of preaching on parables is that oftentimes you have to decipher what in the world does this story mean. Thankfully, I was assigned last week and lucked into another assignment this week where Jesus himself explains exactly what this parable means. So my job is far easier this week. And just like last week, what we're going to do is we're going we're to talk about the parable. We're going to have Jesus' explanation of that parable. And then we're going to apply that a parable to our lives. So the first point is this, the parable... Explained, the parable explained. In this parable, very simply, Jesus compares his kingdom to a farmer who, through his servants, sows good grain into a field. And then while these servants are sleeping, wicked ones come along and they sow weeds into that very same field. They sabotage the crop. And this sabotage is more complete when we understand the type of weeds that were sown. So your first response might be like the response of the servants. If there are weeds in the field, just go weed the field. Got grain, got weeds, got problem with the weeds, take the weeds out. Here's the problem. The type of weeds that were sown, they're called darnel, look exactly like wheat. And it's only at the very last moment when the wheat comes into its fullness and it bears its fruit that it differentiates itself from the darnel up until that point they look exactly the same but at the very end of its life cycle wheat bears fruit and darnel doesn't and so the farmer says to the servants don't pull up what you think are the weeds because you could very well be pulling up the wheat what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to wait we're going to have to wait for both of these to grow up for the wheat to bear its fruit and reveal that it is truly the good seed And then we're going to have to gather up all the wheat and the weeds. We're going to separate the wheat from the weeds. We're going to gather up all the weeds and bundle them together and throw them into the fire. In other words, the farmer was unwilling to risk the good good crop in order to try and weed out the weeds. And then Jesus goes on to explain this parable in verses 36 through 43. If you have your bulletin, look with me again at our passage. He begins by listing off all the characters... And the timeline for the story. Verse 37. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, otherwise known as Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. 
So unlike a wheat harvest, which normally takes place once a year, the harvest of the kingdom takes place once for all at the end of the age. And it's at the end of the age that there is this great sorting out, a sorting out between the righteous ones, which are God's children, and the evil ones, children of the devil. Verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. This parable is a kingdom parable that describes the condition of the world between Jesus' first and second coming, his first advent and his second advent. It makes sense of the mixed world in which we live. Evil and righteousness exist alongside one another. It also points us to a time when Jesus, the Son of Man, will come and when he will make all things new, that he will gather into his kingdom all those that are his and he will remove from his kingdom all things that cause sin and all lawbreakers. He points forward to a day when his kingdom will be where the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now in this parable there are hard words for us to hear. No one probably has a hard time thinking about being the righteous ones who shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. But more than a few of us probably gulped a bit when you began to understand that Jesus compares human beings who do not believe in him to wheat that is gathered up at the end of the age, bundled up, thrown into a fiery furnace where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are hard words. They're sobering words. So let's move now to how these sobering words apply to our lives, hopefully bringing clarity to some of the more difficult words that Jesus speaks. Point number two, the parable applied. The parable applied. If we're going to embrace the good news of the gospel, we must also be willing to embrace the hard, difficult, or bad news that comes along with it. And in this parable, we must, in order to do so, we must first place this parable within a much larger framework. The the framework of God's kingdom, the story of redemption. To put it simply, the story of God's kingdom has a beginning, middle, and end. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. At creation, God made us to know him and to love him, to enjoy him, to be sons of his that live in his kingdom, sons and daughters that shine like the sun in the kingdom of our father. But there was a problem. Adam sinned and all who followed. He sinned and we all sinned in him. And this sin, which is both according to our nature is also revealed in all of our actions. And it sets us in opposition to a holy and just God. The very attributes of God that make him God, love and justice, righteousness, holiness and mercy, are the the very attributes that require him to deal with our sins according to what they deserve. The judgment against our sin is both physical and spiritual. Physical death and spiritual death. A life of suffering followed by death followed by judgment for all eternity, creation, and fall. But then we come to God's redemption. 
God in his mercy made a way for Jesus to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Through the person and work of Jesus, God has made for a way for our sins to be dealt with, for them to be paid for, and for forgiveness to be offered to us, and to do so in such a way that never compromises his holiness and his wrath against sin. In order for God to be both just and a justifier, he sent Jesus into the world. Jesus, unlike Adam, was not born in sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And unlike Adam, Jesus never sinned. He was tempted in every way and what yet was without sin. And then on behalf of his people, he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins on our behalf, satisfying God's wrath against our sin. It's been paid for. And then he rose from the dead, demonstrating that he had defeated both spiritual and physical death. And he ascended, and one day at the consummation, he will come again to make all things new. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. But notice the day of redemption and the day of consummation are not the same day. What Jesus began, he has not yet brought to completion. There is a day when he will come, but that day has not yet come. In the meantime... Jesus' mission goes forward. The seeds of the gospel are being sown. The evil one is also sowing seed right alongside the good seed. And God calls on us to patiently await the day when he will return and separate the wheat from the weeds and make all things new. Now we need to pause, though, and consider Jesus' words on judgment. And the world's response to them. The words of the gospel, when they point to God's love, are palatable. Who doesn't like that God is love? Have you ever met someone who's like, you know what, I don't really want to meet a loving God. We all love that. What we struggle with is that God is also just. When the words of the gospel highlight God's judgment, they're often despised and rejected by those who hear them. In a world living in rebellion, the last thing anyone wants to hear is that there is a God to whom we are accountable, who has a holy standard by which he will judge us, and that we will give an account for our lives at the end of our lives. And yet, we are supposedly a justice-loving people. We live in a world filled with moral outrage. Have you noticed this? We love justice, supposedly. We judge everyone around us. We cancel those we disagree with. We easily point the finger of judgment at others. But any time that finger comes back at us, our response is to rebel against that. When the world hears the words of judgment spoken by Jesus, they are indignant. Who are you to judge me and who is your God to judge me? But here's the reality. The good news of the gospel that Jesus is our Savior is no more or less the good news of the gospel than that Jesus is our judge. We were made for justice. Think about it. When you wake up in the morning and you open your phone or your your laptop or you open a physical paper for anyone who still actually reads those, what are you greeted with? Suffering and scandals, injustice, immorality. And in that moment, don't you long for a time 
when justice will finally be done, when the world will be set right. We are made for justice. We long for justice. But making all things new requires that God be just and our judge. The hard reality is that God in his holiness plays no favorites. Romans 3 says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If we are going to enjoy the riches of God's mercy displayed in the gospel and purchased for us by Jesus who died in our place taking what we deserved, if we are going to embrace his mercy, we must also be willing to embrace his justice because it's through God's just judgment that the world will be made right. So what is all this big picture narrative have to do with the difficult words of Jesus. Jesus makes a sharp distinction in this parable. In the end, people will either belong to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the evil one. And God mercifully puts these words before us to allow us, each of us, to determine whose kingdom will we be a part of. Which master Will you serve? When Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead, words which we speak every single week in the Apostles' Creed, will you be ready for that return? Will you be rejoicing in that moment that God is finally returning to make all things new? Or will you greet that moment with terror, recognizing that the just God of the universe is returning to judge the living and the dead? For friends, Jesus promises there will be a separation. We will either be gathered in with the wheat of his children to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father, or we will be judged, separated, cast into eternal fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not only does this parable call each of us to decide about whether we follow Christ or not, It also helps us live into the tension we feel between the advents. It allows us to make better sense of why the world is the way it is and why good and evil exist alongside one another. Our world is broken. It's inarguable. The world is broken. But what this parable teaches us is that one day Jesus will return to make all things new. And what it calls us to is to patiently wait in faith believing that one day Christ will come again and make all things new. The Apostle Peter points to this type of patience in his second letter, where he says this, 2 Peter 3, 8 and following. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? 
According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, we must wait patiently for Christ's return, trusting that the gospel will ultimately bring joy to those who believe and judgment to those who reject it. Our last point, very briefly, is this. Ears to hear. Jesus, three times in the Gospel of Matthew, says these things. He said it last week and he says it again this week. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Admittedly, the message of this parable is hard for us to embrace. But in order for us to do so, we must have ears to hear. Last week, I exhorted us to take this season of Advent to slow down. And this week, I exhort us to not only slow down, but in that slowing down, to slow down and listen. Listen to God in his word. Be silent before him and allow him to speak to you. I periodically organize my prayer times with a book Marshall recommended to me called Seeking God's Face. It's an excellent book that guides you through a time of prayer. And in this, there's a scripture and then a moment of silence and then some more scripture and some more silence and then some prayer points that it encourages you to do. And what's really difficult for me to do is to be silent. So hard. The moment I quiet myself, when I stop talking, when I stop writing and journaling to God, when I stop reading and I simply stop and quiet myself before God, my mind immediately goes, what about the kids? What about Rebecca? What about the bills? What about work? What a... It's almost impossible for me to slow down and to be quiet. But friends, just like in our human interactions, you can't listen until you stop talking. And what God calls us to do is to slow down, to quiet ourselves, to have ears that hear, which requires that we stop talking in order that we might listen. So friends, slow down, listen to God. Listen to what he has to say about the state of your soul. What he has to say about the challenges of living in a fallen world. What he has to say about the hope that he offers. That this world will not always continue as it is. But that one day he will return and make all things new. When you and I and all who believe in Christ will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would open the ears of those who have never heard the good news of the gospel, that they may hear it and receive it, and that it may be implanted in their souls and bear much fruit. Father, I pray for those who do love you, but who have a hard time quieting themselves like me. May we slow down and may we listen. Listen to the hope and the love that you offer to all who believe in you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.